Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm here once again, I think, for third time, Brian, or fourth Probably. time. Well, gee, who knows? I think I think you're it's either third or fourth, but I think you're the you're the record setter uh, All right. for this podcast. Uh, back to talk about your book, uh, Voters as Mad Scientists, Essays on Political Irrationality, which is, a, like the name implies, a collection of essays uh, that you've written. Nothing, in, uh, there's not a new one like the right feminist now. book right here. Right. Although probably new to you. Uh, yeah, I mean, mo- most of them actually were not new to me. I think there might have been a handful and then some oh. that are sort of gave me vague memories. You know, I've been following you for mm-hmm. a very long time. But yeah, these go back to what's the earliest, like 2008, 2007? 2005. Okay. So yeah, these go back. If you're not a long term, you know, Brian Kaplan, Fagline guy, there's going to be there's going to be tons in here that's new. Um, and it's interesting to watch. Did you ever think about organizing and instead of thematically sort of, um, you know, chronologically? Because mm-hmm. I did think some of the interesting things were, uh, were when you uh, go back and you talk about sort of 2016 um, and, you know, what it did to sort of your politics. There's a little bit of this chronological stuff, but I think there, it would have been sort of interesting to sort of put the book that way. Did you ever, did you ever consider that? That was definitely a possibility. So there's eight volumes. So yeah, then it would have been like two years uh, for each book. I thought it was a lot more interesting to do it thematically. And then the idea that you might get some extra information from the date of publication. I do put the publication dates at the end of every essay. So it's like, oh, this is what he was thinking about then. There's even some essays where... I will vaguely allude to a current event without saying what it is, often with the theme of it doesn't really matter anyway. And then with the time, even I don't even remember what the current event was that I was coming out and saying. Yeah. Oh, I was thinking more that you would do thematic, like a thematically the books you would do it that way. But then oh, okay. So within each book, do the Within each book, exactly. Yeah, because the 2016 yeah. stuff was very interesting because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot of politics changed in 2010 mm-hmm. and 2016 were completely different worlds. And just have just have that all about politics sure. and all chronologically would have been interesting. I mean, I kind of like the idea of someone reading the thing and saying, "When was this even written?" And then they get to the end and they, "Oh, this is two thousand seven, of course." <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I like that. I I don't know. You say in this. You say in this. And I think it might have been the opening. Might have been the opening article mm-hmm. or one of the opening mm-hmm. ones that you don't like politics very much, right? Um, it seems like you do like politics, though. It seems like you enjoy it. Um, it seems like you enjoy talking about it. And maybe, like, not the, you know, watch, like, every presidential debate. But mm-hmm. it does seem like you get some kind of educational experience or entertainment out of a thing. Am I wrong here? I think you are wrong. The only way in which it might be true is if we're talking at the meta level. If it's like, what's going on with the differences in elections in Turkey versus the U.S.? I could get engaged by that. But... When normally it's Tyler comes to lunch and he says, let's talk about like whatever was said yesterday. And like, let's not and say we did, man. Like This is beneath all all of our pay grades. (laughs) I know that you uh, like on Twitter will go and get some hilarity benefit out of it. But like whenever you post a video saying, oh, this is hilarious. You've got to watch. I'm like, I'm not going to (laughs) watch. But it is hilarious. What's hilarious to you that if not our politics? The human degradation of it all. (laughs) It's just so ugly. I don't want to actually see it. I mean, to me, like, for example, like I would not mind reading the newspaper from 20 years ago because I got some distance, but to read today's newspaper just makes me feel like I'm in a pig, in a pig sty with other pigs. I don't want to. What about when you're, well, dude, you know, don't you see human degradation sort of everywhere? So you work at a university and we see sort of <laughs> university bureaucracies and how that work. How is that? How is that not worse? 
Well, guess what? Uh, I could move this camera around my office and you could see there's no one here but me. <laughs> the yeah. number of times I have any contact from any administrator, I can count it on one hand. Actually, when my education book came out, there was a university administrator who said she wanted to come to my office and talk about the book. And I'm like, that's weird. And she actually said, I want to learn how we can do, I can do my job better. And I'm like, wow, all right, I'll tell you. <laughs> but other than that, my contact with the administration's near zero. The only time I've had to deal with them in recent years is when I was on a hiring committee. And yeah, I would not say that was entertaining. It was ugly. It was sorted. I mean, in out of such situations, as you've heard, comedy is tragedy plus time. So sometimes I can go and extract something funny about it to go and tell other people. But normally it's just the sheer drudgery of listening to a person drone on having to listen to someone read their PowerPoint slides when I would give them an F in a public speaking class. It's like, shame on you. Yeah. Yeah. And plus, I mean, this is, I think when you do have to deal with universities, you're, uh, you know, it's a necessary evil because you have a job that involves writing and I guess politics would be taking on something, uh, something in addition to it. So do you not like, like, uh, like, do you like reality, any reality TV shows? No, I, I, I say that there's a few that I've watched just to see one or two episodes. Like I've watched Hoarders once or twice, but then like I don't want to watch more episodes. Like my in-laws were hoarders, so I was sort of curious, where do they, like, are they televisable or not? <laughs> and yes, they actually, they were, they were below the median of the people on the show, but they were definitely within the range of what got on TV. So there was that, let's see. I mean, I wouldn't consider like a cooking competition to be reality TV. My, I'll, I'll sometimes I'm in the room when someone else is watching that, and that doesn't bother me at all. In fact, I sort of consider this a constructive thing for people to do. But yeah, to watch the Kardashians or something like that, like I couldn't. Uh, like Big Brother or Survivor or The Bachelor. None of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, like, is there any exception at all? Like, I'm thinking of watching the new chimpanzee <laughs> reality show on Netflix because my kids want to see it. There's a chimpanzee reality show? I didn't, yeah. I didn't know. That's something. <laughs> I'll watch that. Okay. So it's, like, like, you know, it looks, well, like I was going to say it's heavily edited, but then, of course, reality TV is heavily edited too. But basically, I think it's number one in kids shows right now. And my kids looked interested. In fact, right now we're watching better, you know, Breaking Bad. So we're going to finish that first. Uh, even my 11-year-old's into it now. Uh, what about, uh, how do you feel about people then who watch like professional sports? Hmm. I surprised when really smart people do it because it just seems very repetitive to me, but I know that there's plenty of smart people to do it. Yeah. To me, it's like, it's super boring. Uh, partly, I guess when I was young, I didn't do it because I had some self-concept of I'm a superior person who reads books and things like that. Uh, and then it's just plebeians who go and watch sports. Uh, over time, I have let go of this ridiculous sense of superiority based upon how I'm spending my leisure time. Uh, the you know, I have actually been watching live baseball at Vanderbilt with my sons because they're like five minutes away from the field and you can be right there. So it's much more interesting to me when I'm like 20 feet from home plate than when you're watching it on TV. Although actually, the real story there is I wrote a whole role-playing game about Japanese baseball, and then once I was writing a game about it, I wanted to feel more immersed in what it's really like for better storytelling. And okay, so. well, that seems no more or less pointless than people being into 
into professional sports, right? I guess what I'm asking is like I want to I want to know like you're, oh, you're, you're, Richard, you're saying role playing <laughs> games are comparable to professional sports and uselessness? You know, here I actually uh, say, look, there's a big difference. So to me, there's a big difference between watching sports and playing sports. I totally uh, get people playing sports. Uh, role playing game, it's it's a participatory thing. It's something that you get together with your friends and you do it together and you make a story together. So it's okay. It's highly so. It's highly social. It's very highly. But it, uh, then I would say it's different from sports because there's so much imagination. Yeah. And okay. That, so yeah, that has a lot of appeal to me. So I'm asking all this stuff because I'm sort of wondering how sort of uh, how universal your anti-human uh, degradation rule is. So like reality TV, some people like it because you know it's sort of human degradation. People are in their worst situation. Sort of people like to like, sort of laugh at that. You don't like to watch that. Um, and then like sports, like some people like have contempt for it in a way uh, that some people have contempt for people uh, dislike politics. So it, it does appear, it does appear that you are consistent here. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I like horror movies. I like breaking bad in a sense. You could say it's human degradation, but it's not, you know, that's incidental to this incredible storytelling and everything else. Yeah. But you don't find Trump very funny. No, no, no. Like, 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 to me, I just almost want to take a bath just to listen to him. I can't stand the sound of his voice or anything about him. Yeah, I mean, even be like even before he was a politician, I just like this guy. I think actually, my wife was watching The Apprentice, and I watched one episode, and I, I guess I was not totally grossed out by him then, but it was just like, who is this jackass? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just feel there's something very natural about him being a leader of not the country, at least half the country that sort of fits with his personality. So for mm-hmm. me, there's something congruent. There's just something congruent about it. You understand mm-hmm. what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, this guy... It, it, like, the, one of the big puzzles about politics is why there aren't a lot more people like him. Like, yeah. why is it the professional actors didn't take over long ago? There's a few successful politicians who are previously actors. But when you watch something like C-SPAN, the main thing that strikes me is, man, these are a bunch of boring, ugly troglodytes. Who wants to listen to them? And yet they've made it to the top of this greasy pole somehow. Yeah, that's that that is correct. And I think if you watch, I mean, if you watch politics, it's something you would be, you know, you'd see that's actually very interesting because there does seem to be a political. I mean, the the sort of the uh, talk showification sort of of conservatives in particular. You mm-hmm. look at the Democratic leadership; they're still boring. Nancy Pelosi, mm-hmm. Chuck Schumer, uh, you know, nobody cares. And you know, like Mitch McConnell on the Republican side is also mm-hmm. boring. Um, but like the congressmen who turn out to be like celebrities are sort of are, are shock jocks of a sort. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this like, you know, this like left wing thing where it's like, you know, there's like these, uh, these uh, uh, girls, uh, you know, on Instagram, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So you get a little bit of this, but it's like a different it's like a different age and sex and demographic. Um, but you do see the trend sort of in that direction. So it's interesting, like the sort of. You're right. There were some norms or party control or something that kept a lid of like sort of the natural uh, tendency of how humans, um, you know, of sort of how humans select their leaders or their celebrities or whatever. And that seems to have, you know, really broken down in the last, you know, I don't know, five, 10, 15 years. Yes, perhaps we're finally moving to equilibrium where politicians are entertaining showmen and show women, but. You know, best predictor of the future is the past. So, I mean, probably you know, like, I mean, like, here's something that's really striking to me. If you ever, like, sometimes I think you'll go and retweet some congressman, and then I'll check his number of followers, and he's got like 2,000 followers. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> you, yeah, you, realize yeah. you can be one yeah. of the 435 most powerful people on earth, and hardly anyone even cares that you're alive. 
Yeah, I've I've seen that too. I noticed that. I'm like, I, you know, I was reading about something. It was like some state, like uh, the the you know the the speaker of the house in like Alabama or something is like you know passing some law. And then I go to his Twitter account, and he's got like you know 1,500 followers. I'm like, this guy is you know the most powerful legislator in Alabama, and nobody nobody cares. And I think that the, it's like it's like really interesting. It's like you have these. Uh, and actually, this is a your what are your you have an essay that touches on this ADHD. Yeah, uh, what's it called ADHD shall save shall us. Save, shall save us. And like somebody's paying attention to what that state legislature is doing. Um, it's not, you know, the the hosts on cable news, and it's not the in- biggest influencers usually with you know a million or two million followers on Twitter. It's who knows? It's somebody. It's I somebody. Think like state level lobbying organizations, people that come to his chicken dinner. His yeah, I would, I would assume. I would assume so. Yeah, constituents, uh, probably business, local businesses, local lobbying organizations. Um, I think that there are some national like lobbying organizations that are you know that do do a lot of stuff at the state level. Yeah, um, like how many of those followers are even from Alabama? Might be like you're picking up. It could be like the national committee of the party and people involved in that, and are sort of looking around. I hope Alabama is not embarrassing us, or maybe there's some new talent coming out of Alabama. We can push them up to the national level. Yeah, yeah. So I I really like this essay because it's sort of it's a um, it's I think it's something you know that I've thought about that it's not um, it can be framed as a sort of a novel case for democracy can it so it's like you know the case for democracy is like you know the you know the classic case is like people are good or something and they they do what they want and the case for monarchy like sort of uh like a courtesy arvin kind of argument is like democracy is bad because nobody has uh you know nobody's sort of paying attention and like you know the uh you know that uh you know government will just spend money or will just act irresponsibly and nobody's response nobody it doesn't matter but it's like no democracy is good because what most people want is bad right and then people don't get it they get you know whoever happens to be paying attention they could be better or they could be worse <laughs> but but the point is somebody else is uh deciding you know what ends up the policy that ends up being implemented yeah i mean i would put that essay in the category of why isn't democracy much worse which is a puzzle that anyone who studies public opinion really ought to be wondering about before you study public opinion, it's like, how can everything not be great like in the civics textbook? And then you learn what the public thinks. And it's like, oh, my God, this is what they think. This, these, are, these are the views that are popular. And then it's like, why are we living? You know, why isn't the country on fire, given what people think? Like, why is it when I look out my, uh, my office window, I don't see horrible stuff happening? I mean, a lot. And they, like, I've got a lot of stories about it. But one of the stories is that however, however bad the public's views are, they just don't have the mental attention span to go and make sure it really happens. You just think about all of Trump's protectionist promises and he basically renews NAFTA. And like, is that what his, the people who voted for his protectionist stuff wanted? Probably not, but you know, he gets them all excited about the evils of foreign products, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to get tough with Mexico, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, and on you know, like NAFTA is the worst treaty. What do you mean? You say like NAFTA's worst treaty ever signed or something like yeah, that. It sounds like him. Yeah. yeah. And then he goes and renews it with cosmetic changes. And then, life goes on, you know, he, I mean, actually that, you know, that was when I learned some other things about U S politics. Like, wait, the president is allowed to just unilaterally end a trade treaty. Like what, what kind of a system are we running here? What a freaking banana Republic that a guy gets elected and just says, Hey, I, I don't like the treaty. Let's get rid of it. Uh, it's gone. I thought there would have to be a full re- legislative repeal for that to happen. And then I discover I was completely confused. Yeah, no, there's treaties and there's things that they are that work like treaties, but they don't call them treaties. And yeah, the president sort of gets it. The Iran nuclear deal is a 
is another one. It never went through Senate ratification, so it wasn't even it wasn't a treaty officially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, they, uh, they Trump could just get rid of it. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. They don't. And the, and the, yeah, the trade thing is interesting. They do not. You know, they do not pay attention, and they get used to the sort of people get used to sort of whatever the status the status quo is, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, that's, I think, another thing. It's like there's a lot of things sure. that are just really bad people want to do, but when you want to do something and it just goes against the status quo, there tends to be a, a, a political backlash to that. So it just sort of, I mean, the voters do have this kind of a, uh, this kind of a sort of just very small C conservatism to them, which, you know, stops things, from, I think, from getting too bad. Yeah, if there's a popular policy idea that, policy idea that would be disastrous if tried, then I've got a lot of hope that it won't happen because politicians feel like, well, I'll get a lot of great press from doing this popular thing. But when the economy tanks or we're in a major war, voters will be mad at me for that. The net effect is maybe going to be negative, so I won't do it. Where I have almost no optimism is for unpopular, great ideas to happen. That's something where people are not just going to get angry about opportunities that they deny even exist. And that's why the policy reforms that I'm so jazzed up about, things like deregulating housing or deregulating immigration, I just have so little hope of improvement because look, it's, it's one thing if we did it and then to go back, then I think maybe we would stay at the better thing. But to, in a world where we are currently have enough food and people are not homeless and we don't have nuclear missiles landing on us to say, yeah, but things could be a lot better than that. I mean, imagine that we had the cure for mortality, but we needed to get like a super majority to approve it. Yeah. Well, that is sort of the world, I mean, that is sort of the world we, we live in because the, anti, you know, genetic engineering and like, you know, anti-aging, there's a lot of stuff that could be doing that's great, but you need to, you need to overcome inertia mm-hmm. in the political process. Yeah. Well, I mean, so like, I haven't heard of anything actually demonstrably working yet. Have you? Uh, as far as what anti-aging, yeah, no, anti-aging. but I'm in the sense that like they're the we don't create the incentive, we don't yeah. do the spending or the incentives to to make it happen. You know, you know, there's easier to understand why we don't fund something that's just a hope, right? It's like well, that'd be great if tried, but who knows if it's going to work. But I'm saying if we had the demonstrable cure for aging, I'm sure you're right. We need a super, and we need all three branches of government, and we had divided government. Or I mean, I could see like someone filibustering it. <laughs> like you're filibustering to save death. What the hell is wrong with you? But I could see that happening. I mean, actually, like like when general for life extension, most people say they're against it. You know, they're you know they're they're in favor of living longer, but not living beyond to an to an unnaturally long level. If everybody lives to ninety, that's fine. But for for one person to live to one hundred and thirty using a drug. Well, it's it's sort of like stupid. It's like it's like the um, the people. Well, it's like yeah, people have this like. So there's like when you poll people on like uh, embryo selection or some kind of genetic engineering to fix a disability, they yes. will say yes. So if your IQ is sixty five and you want to go to seventy, like that's okay. <laughs> but I guess if your IQ was eighty and you want to go to ninety or something, I guess that's that's problematic, right? Or you're one hundred thirty yeah. or you want to go to one hundred fifty yeah. uh, or whatever. So people do have this idea that like, okay. It's like bad if you if nature nature could deal you a a rough head, but mm-hmm. you know we don't want you getting too big for your br- britches. You know we don't want you <laughs> thinking you could God has placed some limit, and we don't want you like right. going beyond that, right? Yeah, as for what people really thinking, I, mean, I remember when I was actually a kid, I read some book about like the meaning of immortality and human experience, something like that. And there was a lot of stuff about how, like, how could there ever be progress if men of the stature of Moses were still walking around? <laughs> like, well, like, I think we could still have progress. 
mean, I think like Elon has actually said some crazy things like this, like we need to have deaths, otherwise we'll get ossified. And it's like, first of all, I would rather live forever in an ossified world than die. Obviously, any sane person would. And secondly, you don't. You, there, there are ways of getting progress without having young people take over organizations dominated by the elderly, like start their own damn companies. It's happened. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the interesting thing about the Silicon Valley uh, thing, because it seems like people say why there was so much progress in computing and not in anything else. And one theory I heard, or maybe I invented this, or maybe I just heard it, is that um, basically this was just the least regulated area, right? Mm-hmm. You could Anyone could write code. Anyone could do anything. We, we didn't have the regulation for it like we do in the world of atoms. We, you know, we, we don't have that at all. That's, and that's just that's just why it took yeah. off. We just yeah. permissionless innovation. Exactly. We st- we stifled. It's just the braids went where we stifled innovation the least, right? Mm-hmm. And so the question, I guess, is what is what is the sort of the the next area that we could look for? It's because it's not it's not biology, right? Because it's like that's like medicine. It's like heavily regulated. Yeah. Not education. Maybe AI. Do you have a t- you have you think you're you're a, you're a skeptic on the AI junior stuff, right? Each one of you guys is you, Brian, you, uh, Tyler. Well, Robin. I'm a skeptic of disaster. Yeah, I'm sold on it's doing amazing things. Yeah. For a while, I was doubting that, but I laid my own standards for what ought to be done for me to change my mind, and it was done, and so I've changed my mind. Yeah. So maybe it is, but that's still just, okay, so maybe that's the area, but it's still, it's actually still just software. It's just still software that's going to be the area where... It's just the the next big thing in tech as to how big it will be. That's what I'm still, so again, I'm I'm convinced the AI is actually now really good. What I'm, I'm definitely not even remotely convinced about there being a, some existential danger or anything like that. I'm not worried about that at all. And then on how quickly it's going to yield a lot of economic value, that I'm also skeptical of just because we have a lot of experience of incredible new technologies showing up and it's obvious how they should be applied, but it just takes a long time for human beings to roll them out. It's a little unclear why it's so slow. Like local malls exist. We've had e-commerce for 25 years. I mean, to me, a mall is basically just a place to stroll around with a kid you know, during bad weather and then leave and not buy anything. That's the point of a mall. Yeah, and sometimes you just get bored and you buy something. I think that's sort of a, that's how it works. Maybe not you. Maybe you have more self-control than I do. But yeah. I, I usually just end up buying something. Uh, the, uh, or you eating. A pretzel or something. But yeah. like, how many pretzels do you have to sell to sustain that, that mall? Yeah, yeah. The mall is an interesting sort of... Yeah, the mall is an interesting thing. So it's... Um, yeah, but the other the other thing is also the um, the uh, uh, regulations, right? It's like, you know, like there's a lot of stuff that could be replaced by AI right now, which we don't. You know, the you've probably seen the research on like doctors and like al- algorithms versus algorithms, and apparently yeah. the algorithms can be just as good or, or mm-hmm. better. Yeah, better. And it's yeah. just like, but we don't. We still have doctors. Did you see the G- GPT four uh, three? I think it was like GPT three. Uh, used to be able to write legal briefs. You could say, "I want to sue Brian Kaplan for something or other," and it would write yeah. the it would write the document for oh, really? you. But then, yeah. if you ask like the next version, I just saw this on a tweet. I haven't confirmed this. GPT four, it will say, "I'm not a lawyer and cannot offer legal advice." So <laughs> they, it lobotomized itself that it can't it can't replace lawyers. That was funny because I once gave it an assignment on a legally sensitive matter, and it did pretty good. And then I said, "Now make it legally invulnerable," and I showed it to my wife, and she's like, "That's good." Mm-hmm. She is a lawyer, so 
Yeah, uh, that was not quite the same as saying do a, do, a, do a legal brief, but it was definitely in the same ballpark. It didn't say I'm not a lawyer; I can't tell you how to make something legally vulnerable. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, it's real. I mean, it's really, really good at like it's replaced Google like a little bit for me. Like if I uh, like I, if I'm unsure about uh, whether something's grammatical or not, if you put that into ChatGPT and you just ask, it is very good at that. It will tell you exactly why it's grammatical or it's not. Grammatical. You could do try that with Google. You actually have to work for a while uh-huh. uh, to figure out sort of what's going on. Uh, yeah. So there are certain things that ChatGPT is just is just much much uh, better. And I'm not impressed with like the story. Uh, I'm, I mean, a little bit impressed, but they're very, uh, they're very, uh, sort of, you know, basic. Boilerplate. Yeah, boy, exactly. Boilerplate. Was, yeah, I, I was actually playing it with the last night. I told it to write an Arthurian telenovela and the first version was boilerplate, but then I said, you know, like fill in a lot of details, of the plots, you know, like, you know, making a land, I added, added in the emotional palette that I wanted. And then it actually was quite a bit better. Definitely at the, at least at the level of a, Good English major in a creative writing class. It was as good as that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and, so. I, and I am someone that puts a lot of weight on sentence construction, diction. Like, again, there's some writers that in some sense are great, like Dickens, but I just don't like him because I don't like his sentences. And then there's others where like, these are such wonderful sentences. I can just sit there worshiping the sentences. Like, no coward. I was just watching a, a movie based on one of his plays. I didn't even know that he was involved, but I'm listening. Like, these sentences are fantastic. And then it's like, oh, of course, it's no coward. Yeah. So let's uh, let me ask you about the. I wanted to ask you about the simplistic theory of left and ah. right. And the um, do you take intensity of belief into this? So when you say leftists all dislike markets, and it's I'm like, yeah, but they also all think you know the the world is round, and they also think that uh, you know. Incest is wrong, and there's you know a million things you could say about leftists that they would all agree on, and that's sort of your cr- criteria. And I don't see this as something leftists necessarily are that unique. It seems to me a lot of conservatives don't really like markets either. If you read them, if you give them a new thing that's not just about tribal things, that you know they tend not to like mm-hmm. markets. Uh, so you know, is is the, do you think that there's something about intensity of belief there that you need to account for? Right. So let me just back up. So here's the simplistic theory. And notice it's truth in advertising. I'm not claiming this is the universal rule. I just say that this is the best quick description of left versus right that I think does fit almost all politics on planet Earth for the last two centuries well, though not perfectly. So, And the slogan is this, or the simplistic theory is this. The left is anti-market. The right is anti-left. Now, uh, part of what I actually say there is Meaning is, why don't you say the right is pro-market? It says, yes, because Richard's right. A lot of right-wingers are not pro-market. A lot of right-wingers do have anti-market views. What unifies them is that even when they agree with the left about markets working poorly, they don't say the left is right about this. They go and focus on something something else. So basically, when right-wingers get together, the way they bond, or sort of like the consensus statement that they would sign off on would be a bunch of bad things about leftists. And similarly, when the left gets together, just imagine a grand consensus or the great convention with time travel and people coming from all over the last two centuries to the left. If they had to write a compromise position paper, it would be a bunch of complaints about markets, whereas the right-wingers would not be able to come to a consensus on complaining about markets because there'd be some pro ones, some anti ones, some mixed ones. In terms of intensity, I do think intensity has a lot to do with it uh, because what you will see among leftists, and there are many leftists that you were mentioning in your piece on 
the what, what did you call them? The uh, uh, like the thoughtful moderates. What was your oh your enlightened centrist, which is the not enlightened, the enlightened centrist. Okay. So I know a lot of left wing people fit in your enlightened centrist category. Here's the thing about them. If I go and tell them the, st- the stuff that I that I care about, they'll, go, they'll generally go, yes, 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 of course, immigration is great. Yes, yes, of course, housing deregulation is great. Now let's get back to what I really care about, which is the horrible actions of Elon Musk on Twitter. Not the people, not the people I listed. I don't think that they care about it. They care about Elon Musk being that on Twitter. So, I mean, like, that's just one example, but like out of stuff that they really care about. So let me just think, let's see. So you had Matt Iglesias. So I read his 1 Billion Americans. I'm in sympathy with so much of that book. And yet, with him, you can tell like he's seems more worked up about inequality than almost anything else. And even when you were like, like he knows it's not that big of a deal, really, and like mostly it's in your head anyway. But like he's just more agitated about that. And I think that is you know, my experience among left wing economics professors. I know plenty of them. They may agree with me on a lot of points, but the thing they want to talk about is very different. Often, it's of course whatever was in the news yesterday. But a lot of that is focused on the bad stuff that markets are doing. I mean, this is the thing that really strikes me about the left, which is that they hate Elon a lot more than they hate the ruling family of Saudi Arabia. All right, so you got one group of people who run a totalitarian dictatorship. They 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 they, they live in ridiculous luxury based purely on heredity, pretty much. Like you know, they were the ISIS that won, as someone memorably said. And on the other hand, you've got an incredible entrepreneur who goes and says some things they don't like. And who is the person that they're pissed off about? They're pissed off about poor Elon. Like, like how can you even... T- and then again, sometimes they'll be rationally, well, I don't talk about the Saudi government because I can't influence the Saudi government. What a ridiculous post hoc rationalization for the what's obviously an emotional reaction. It's like you just don't care that much about a horrible monarchy tyrannizing over some other country you've never been to. And you do care about some rich, successful guy who's creative and has risen to the top in, in large part through merit, also some luck, but that, that, that guy can go and stroll around and do cool stuff and shoot his mouth off. And that aggravates you. Yeah. I mean, do we need to step back? I mean, the premise of this, that we need to get all the leftists from the last 200 years in a room and then say what they have in common. Like maybe that's like sort of a fool's. We could we, we, maybe that's just the arbitrary way we classify. We say something has to be left and something has to be right. Maybe that's not the way. Maybe we get the authoritarians in one room and the uh, uh, democracy believers in the other room, and then you could say, well, these are the categories we care about, right? So I, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm questioning sort of what, is this left versus right thing? Is it even useful over a long time, you know, long time horizon? Mm-hmm. Well, well, here's the thing. There's a lot of other people trying to explain the same thing. Right. So I'm I'm probably the first person who tries to who tried to say what a left and right what what a leftist have in common what a rightist have in common. There's another a number of other answers that I respond to that I think aren't very good. My I take my answer is this is the best attempt to go and answer the question these other people are answering. In terms of why it is that this is the thing to talk, to talk about. Well, let's see. I've spent a lot of time reading history, and it's you know it's pretty striking. Like modern left wingers will try to say good things about Karl Marx. It's a guy from like 150 years ago. What do you care about him? And yet they keep bringing him up. Let's see. Right-wingers, as you know, they watch TV rather than read, so they're not so into their intellectual forebears. But every now and then you will meet the right-wing intellectual who want to talk about Burke or you know, De Maestra or like other even more obscure figures. So like, it doesn't seem to be totally... It like, seems like there is 
you know, you know, to me, in a, in a way, like you realize this is something, it's like evolution where every generation was very similar to the previous one, but over time they become really different from each other. And then the question is, is there, are there any things that are state where the where they're breeding true? And I would say on the anti-market attitudes, these are something where the left-wing position stays true to itself. It's like every generation, they find new things to complain about in markets. We can basically eliminate absolute poverty, but does that mean leftists say, oh, I guess that markets are great now. They just find new things to complain why don't you, about. Why don't you just say it's inequality. It's not the hatred of markets. It's hatred of inequality. If, if market, like, so they like – so okay, so here's a, here's a thing. They sort of – they like uh, – they relatively like Scandinavia. Right, and Scandinavia, the system is sort of markets with a lot of redistribution. And your typical leftist likes Scandinavia a lot more than they like Venezuela. Well, Venezuela is more anti and Cuba are more anti market mm -hmm. than uh, Sweden is. But it seems like it's the inequality that they care about more than the hatred of market itself. Well, if you go to Sweden to meet the leftists, what do they think? They're not going to be talking about how great Sweden is. They're going to be complaining about Sweden having way too much in the way of markets and so on. Yeah, um, probably. Yeah, I mean, for the end. I mean, for, but for the for, for yeah, that, yeah. Okay, but yeah. American leftists, if they if yeah. they hated if they hated markets yeah. more than anything, they would just go. They yeah. would just go to North Korea. So, so that again, that's why I I was actually quite careful to specify. Hate is too strong of a word. I don't think that most rightists hate leftists. I don't think most leftists hate markets. It's antipathy. It's just a, a an aversion, an unwillingness to go and ever give an undiluted compliment of any kind. Right? It's the one where you just have to go and put in some complaints simultaneously. So you can find the leftist, you say, so what do you think about markets? The, oh, they've been great at producing prosperity. The end. It's very hard to find a leftist that will give that answer. They need to tack on, but it's been bad for inequality. Now, so we're you trying to as being against inequality. If you say, what's, uh, what do you think about America? They wouldn't say it's great. The end, they would say blah, blah, blah. If you say, what's, you know, what do you think about religion? They would not say, you know, it's, it's, they would say it's okay, good for some people, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so I don't know. I, I, I think that the, I think these things are, I think it's too ambitious of a theory. I, I just think sort of we call things left and right. Mm -hmm. Um and you know, but I, I yeah, don't. Well, it would be too ambitious if I wanted to fit everyone. That's impossible. But here's the thing on the inequality. Like I said, they don't care that much about inequality in Saudi Arabia. They don't even seem to be angry about the British monarchy very much. I mean, I have taught in England, and there, there's leftists who don't like the monarchy. Although even then, it's sort of minority view. That kind of inequality, where you're just born into it, you don't earn it, you don't make money, you don't produce stuff. That doesn't seem to really bother them nearly as much as an Elon Musk. Just someone who, through his own ability and entrepreneurial attitude and luck, just rises and becomes a billionaire. That seems to really tick them off. Right? And you know, like on the other hand, like you know, it's not just for leftists that I think that this is going on. Again, like I point out, like right wingers, there's a lot of left wing policies that are very popular among the right. In fact, in way, in a way, you might say they like them more. They like Social Security more now. Maybe they like Medicare more now than the left. But so, what is it? And it's like, well, look, we like these things, but we're not going to give credit to those guys for doing it. This is just pragmatism. It's common sense. It's America taking care of its own. That's fine. I mean, and you know, like, as you probably, I think, I think you'll agree with this. You can easily see that in 30 years that transgenderism will be totally accepted among the right, but they won't say the left was right about it. They're just going to act like it's just normal common sense. No, I, I don't think I don't think that's true. Not for transgenderism. I, I think that's no, the you don't think that'll ever be accepted among the well, uh, 30 years no. the right won't accept it? No. 
I, I, there's two kinds of accepting. There's accepting your kid doing it, which I don't think anyone really accepts even today. And then there's accepting it as a general social thing that you're going to go and stick your neck out about. I mean, transgenderism in the sense that, um, uh, you know, uh, actual operations and hormone blockers and all of that, I don't think that that will be ever. It's not accepted in most of the first world today um, mm-hmm. that this is, you know, this is what you yeah. do. Um, you know, kids. Right. children. Um, no, I think society, I, I think there is an equal, I think there is a sort of a, uh, a stickiness to sort of our ideas of sex and the two genders. And I think they, I, I do think the transgender thing will, uh, if not burn itself out, be remain a dividing line for a very long time. years ago, would you believed how mainstream just real LGB? Yeah. Homosexuality. You're, you're right. Uh, that is, you know, that is, uh, that is, I would probably not have, and, yeah, I was like years ago. I looked at public opinion on whether it was all like we think of it. Was the, the question was is homosexuality always wrong? And I think that even twenty five years ago was eighty percent of Americans saying yes. And basically, I looked at that and said, "This will be the way it always is." And then about the day after I made up my mind on that, the line had a sudden break and then started moving in a dramatically different, you know, dramatically downwards. But we had like 30 years of data where it was flat and almost everyone saying it's terrible. And then suddenly it changed. You know, there's, I mean, same thing for marijuana legalization <laughs> and a couple other things where there's like four decades of uniform monolithic majority opposition and then a sudden change. Yeah. So I've I mean, seen so I've seen something. I mean, it doesn't seem to always go all after. I I I, I, re- I think I remember seeing data on um, you know the acceptability of having an affair or something like that, mm-hmm. and that actually has either sort of been stable or you know maybe even shifted a little bit, and yes. more people saying it's it's wrong. Uh, so sometimes the conservative views do it. No, I think even around like the George W. Bush era. You could see there was sort of the writing on the wall for a very long time because, like George W. Bush, wouldn't come out and say gay people are defective or anything like that. Like when they would ask him, like in two thousand two, two thousand three, mm-hmm. like he would just say, "I believe, due to my religious conviction, that marriage is between a man and a woman." And that's as far as he would go. He would not say these yeah. people are defective; these people are wrong. There's if you listen, there's a good article in, uh, in Semaphore the other day. You, the way Republicans are talking about uh, transsexuals now <laughs> and transgender people, and even like compared to three or four years ago, it's really extreme. It's like you know, it's like we need to eradicate this from society. These people are freaks. So it really, I mean, it does seem like there was a sort of, uh, there was an extreme, there's been an extreme reaction to the transgender for, I think, natural reasons having to do with the difference between homosexuality and transgenderism, sort of what the transgender movement uh, demands. So, yeah, I don't know what what we would have seen among conservatives in the 70s, where in the 60s, they don't talk about it at all because it's barely even on on the radar. And then once it gets on the radar, then there's a very angry reaction. And then it appears that they it appears that they are radicalizing when it's really they are just opening their eyes to what's going on, and it takes them a while to wake up. And then, oh my God, I hate this. And then a few decades pass, and it's like, all right, whatever. Yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah. I think that people are going to have like a societal like people get to know gay people, or they see people living gay, and it's like, okay, I think you're going to have like you know this generation with a lot of people transitioning, and I don't think that I don't think the results are long term good uh, for these people who like transition as minors and, and stuff like that, and people who sort of experiment with you know the gender in their other ways. So I, I do I do think there are just like differences here. You're right. We could be we could be in the 1970s. We could be in the backlash uh, era, uh, era. Although you know it was like 1970s. It wasn't like uh, Gerald Ford was you know talking about you know homosexuals being perverts or or anything like that. Um, Yes, I mean, I was too young to actually remember what people were saying on TV at the time. You know, of course, it was a very different world because you only had like three channels. And so 
like like it was hard for someone with an especially vociferous view to even appear on television in those days. If you imagine the seventies, but we had two hundred TV channels, then what would people have been saying about gays? I think yeah. there would have been probably like some extreme anger being expressed. Yeah. Right, but yeah. I guess I guess we guess we're a little bit off topic. Yeah, so well, we're, I forgot what, what, what's yeah, what, 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 is the simplistic theory. So I was just trying to come up with you know other ways in which there's a continuity of the right. So you know, like if you go and look at again, you know, like you know, the, you know, the terms as you know come from the organization of the uh, in the French Parliament. And again, if you were to go and look at the original people who were uh, you know, against the left, you know, like like a lot of different views, a lot you know, of course, a bunch of different kinds of monarchists, militarists. Uh, I do know the like, weird thing is that Frederick Bastiat did sit on the left, which doesn't fit my theory, except that I said it wasn't intended to be universal. Things were still sorting out. But you know, this, for example, is how like I think it is right to classify Nazism as a right-wing movement because they just hated the left so much. And then like, and you might say, yeah, but you have all these uh, you know, anti-market views. Like That's fine as long as you hate those guys. Yeah. Then you count. Yeah. Yeah, the the hatred, the hatred of the hatred of markets. I, I just, yeah, I, I and the left and, and the and the left. Is yeah, the no, the hatred, no, the hatred of left. I I get. Um, was that always like conservatives? Like, would you have okay? So, like, you think about like the Enlightenment, and then you have like this reaction, and there's you know the the you know these people are just sort of some people are just religious, and they you know they're they're conservative, and they have like an actual vision of like a society based on biblical principles or whatever. People would say that's the right, but I don't think you would say a Christian fundamentalist who just cares about Christian fund like uh, you know, people who are pushing for abortion restrictions who don't even care if it hurts the Republican Party. They just are into you know stopping abortion. Um, so it would have to account for for these people. People, right. Well, let's see. But I would still say that. You know, I mean, obviously, if you are very pro-life, you are not going to like people who are pro-abortion. There might be some Christian the veneer of "I hate the sin, but love the sinner." But you know, the number of people who can psychologically detach person from action is pretty much nobody. So, I mean, it, it definitely they they fit in the coalition. I mean, it's just one where, like, really to like to be part of the big right-wing group, you just have to hate those guys over there. Doesn't really matter why. Yeah. Um, you know, like when you're talking about like early religious conservatives, you know, I'll say they're right wing. So you know, like, but they're like they are in the same broad coalition of secular conservatives. You just have people who just say, look, you know, we just want to go and build up our national industry. I'll put like your 19th century militarists, you know, like of Japan or Germany, the Prussians, like you know, people like that, Bismarck. They also fit in the right wing. Because though Bismarck famously is the founder of the German welfare state, he did it to screw the left. And he, that was what was on his mind was, we got to take the stuff that's going to be popular and we need to go and turn the German working class into good German workers. Right? So that's, I think, to my mind, that all fits. I mean, like many people think there's some kind of a normative agenda. There really isn't. I mean, like, I, there's, you know, of course, like when you start thinking about it, it's like, wow, these are like two rogues galleries. Where does Brian fit? And I'm like, yeah, well, like obviously I'm on the right wing side because, like, I definitely cannot be on the side of people who don't like markets. So I, and then the other side, it's like, well, yeah, like, like at least around them, I'm not going and just feeling really disliked all the time. What's very striking to me is that even when I go and defend what you can think of as a left wing policy like open borders, a lot of individual leftists are supportive, but I get no institutional appreciation from the left. There's no left-wing think tank or organization that goes and tries to go and promote me or give me a talk or even invite me out for dinner or anything like that. Whereas right-wing groups that disagree with me on tons of stuff treat me really good, generally. 
not not every single one, but over. But basically, they they're, they're like they're like Brian's crazy on immigration, but you know he's a good guy. You know he know you know, like he's he's against wokeness, and that's enough. Yeah. Yeah, like I don't even have to do that much to get for those guys to be my friends. I think that's, but I think that's a natural. Uh, uh, that's the way sort of our politics work. We have this very nationalized sort of things with these two sides and these two major parties, mm-hmm. and I think that it's hard to sort of be somebody who's liked on both the right and the left. So you sort of have to have to pick one. I, I don't. Th- I wouldn't take that as a sign that there is some kind of you know essence that this would be like this in every society, or they're like you know this is basically there are two kinds of thinking about the. Of the world. I mean, what is the like? What is the micro theory? What is like the ultimate theory? Like the ultimate theory as to why humanity would break down into people who hate markets and people who just hate those people? Yeah, I mean, I've got no story about that. This is a descriptive theory. It's not. It's just meant to go and categorize and just say how do we go and get the smallest number of wrong classifications in these two boxes? What does it take? Um, in terms of like why it would be that way? Yeah, it's. Um, yeah, I don't have any really good story about it. I mean, like, if I if I was just trying to come up with the least bad thing I could say, it's like, well, you know, very early on in modernity, we we got modern technology, and the natural thing that business wants to do with technology is to go make money off of it. And there's some people who get really ticked off by that, and that becomes your original fanatical leftists: is people just livid at the fact that someone wants to build a factory and go and make shirts out of it and make and make money doing it, and then. Uh, on the other hand, we've got all the other people who look at those guys and say, they seem like a bunch of jerks. I don't like them, but this is pretty weak. I mean, like, here's what's striking to me is you can even go into the middle ages and you'll see Christian writers going and talking about the horrors of poverty and inequality. And, and when you read them, like these are people living in these, not like the Saudi Arabia, but something in that ballpark of like horrible hereditary dictators, waxing fat off the blood of the people and also there's some merchants. And when they go and complain about and point fingers at who's to blame for poverty, they don't breathe a word about the dictators that, that are there sponsoring them and protecting them. They go and point fingers at the merchants and say these horrible merchants and how they do their greed and rapacity. And it's like, look at the coos living in the castle. Yeah. Who's, who's sending men around to rob the poor and take the food and collect seems, the taxes? It seems, it seems like there's an obvious... Like explanation for that, right? <laughs> Which is they'll come and chop off their heads. Yes, all the, there's that. Yeah. Although, you know, but I think it also is it's just more repugnant to people to make your money the honest way than to just be the high status primate. Uh, this is you know, you know, there there is a general evolutionary psych story about this of like someone who's just super dominant. It not only makes sense for you to not get become their enemy, but to even start sincerely sympathizing with them for your Trivers reasons, right? You know, Trevor's would say, you know, like Stockholm syndrome makes evolutionary sense. You you don't want the hostage taker to, uh, you know, to think that you hate him. And the best way to convince him you don't hate him is to not hate him. Same thing with living under a all oppressive blood soaked tyrant is to actually sincerely identify with him. Rich people are, you know, especially you know, the rich merchant, it's someone on the one hand, like you like. People feel this resentment towards them, but they feel like pretty safe targets. They don't seem all powerful. They seem more like a nerd who has money, and he, but he's got it. He drives his BMW, but you could always key his car. Well, he'll, he's <laughs> yeah. not going to beat you up. Yeah. What do you think about these? You talked about leftists. They don't get excited about open borders. They do get excited about Gimbyism, don't they? How does? How do you think about this? What I say is, look. I, I hope I'm wrong, but my experience is there's a very small sliver of leftists who are in DMB. They're excited. 
But most of what they do is try to get the rest of the left excited, and they just keep failing. Yeah, it's just not as exciting. Hard. No, well, I mean, right. And, right. and in terms of public opinion data, we see that the worst NIMBYs are the left. Now, you might say, well, it makes sense that the YIMBYs would be leftist too, because it's in San Francisco that you're going to have some very smart people who are identified as leftists, but they also have eyes and can see that the regulations are crazy. But at the same time, like, you know, Places like California, these policies are very popular with a very left-wing population. And here's the really cool stuff. Uh, near you at UCLA, Michael Manville has a paper where he actually just did a little experiment. He gave people, randomly selected people, two versions of the question. One is, should you be allowed to build certain kinds of housing? And the other one is, should you be allowed to build certain kinds of housing if it would generate a large profit for the developer? Uh, huh. And the second question, support, it was, oh, that was never great, but support just crashes when you mention that someone's going to make money off of it. And this, again, gives us an idea, like, like why is this... It's so was, there was there a big conservative liberal difference on that? I don't remember. I think, I think it is... I mean, I think it's, it's, it's going... It's, you'll get an effect for both, because it's not like conservatives love rich developers either, but I think it is going to be less. Um, like, in terms of, like, difference in housing policy between Texas and California... I don't think it's that people in Texas actually admire housing developers or anything like that. I think there is just a lower level of resentment, which makes it, which means. Yeah. That, well, why uh, not just why not just focus on the on the resentment, right? Because you do have this thing like you have this white privilege, you have this male stuff, you have the uh, uh, you have the um, you have the anti market, and I, I sort of see the anti market stuff as just like building the broadest coalition. We can't say you know you can't lead with the I hate all white people thing uh, because there's too many white people, right? Um, but you can lead with sort of I hate the rich guys thing, mm -hmm. um, and that just sort of you just may want to maybe just understand it is sort of at the level of uh, zero-sum thinking and envy and sort of these basic instincts. Mm -hmm. And that sort of the anti-market stuff sort of derives from that. Yeah, there's just the question of why not unite against, for example, you know, like, like um, under monarchy, you know, unite against you know, like the, the aristocracy. Like, you know, even when you know, like the aristocracy was both super rich and also obviously pretty useless, like in 19th century Europe. There, were, there weren't radicals that were against the aristocracy. All that. There definitely were, but their rage was much milder and less focused on them than on the, the, the capitalists, the bourgeoisie. Do you think you think Jacobins dislike capitalism more than they dislike the king and the aristocrats? Let's see. That's, what I'd say is that's just a bit too early for there to be much capitalism, for there to be really getting worked up over, but... You know, like, like you know, most of the people uh, guillotined in the French Revolution were merchants, actually, and not people for any other view. They're basically people who violated the price control laws. So they like, pretty quickly get to that. I mean, Rousseau, who does, of course, predate the French Revolution, I think you really get this in him, where he's got, on the one hand, you know, it's not really egalitarian. There's a lot of respect for a certain kind of elite, but we don't want it to be a money-grubbing, like, like crafty <laughs> self-satisfied, self-made elite. We want it to be more of like maybe an aristocracy of talent or something like that. So maybe we just hate nerds. Maybe we just hate nerds who yeah, like, take their money through their brains. and like. I do have this other piece on the jock nerd theory, and I think there's at least there's a psychological compatibility, especially since in the modern world, intelligence is one of the most standard traits that you'll see among rich people. Although, you know, like probably it was true in earlier periods too. Um, I mean, just the, you know, like even even if not the like the original warlords are not that smart, but then who do they marry? They marry the daughter of the guy that they just conquered, and then they wind up 
getting smarter that way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, so that's, uh, yeah, so that's, that's the right, the right and the left. I, I, yeah, I I thought, I think I sort of favor a different sort of, uh, level of analysis of these, of this. You know, like, like I'm not against other levels. But if we're going to talk about this question, like the one that to me seems most unjustified, especially given how popular it is among very smart people. So Scott Alexander has his survive, his the survive thrive theory of left and right. He says, you know, rightism. This is the ideology for a world where survival is at stake, and uh, you know, the left wing. This is the view for the world where or where, where we're trying to thrive. And there's a lot of problems with this story, which are really pretty obvious. You know, st- you know, starting with let's see, the countries that are that have been most revolutionary left wing are ones that have been desperately poor on the edge of starvation. Those world communist revolutions happen or are in these uh, desperate poor countries. Also, point out that during wars, when survival is at stake, this is when government normally gets way bigger. You know, there's um, uh, there's a uh, another one that I think you're right. I agree with your critique of uh, the Scott Alexander theory, but there's one of Robert Hansen that I mm-hmm. haven't um, that I didn't see before until I saw it in your in, yeah. in your book. And I actually th- this one actually just sort of hit me as like very sort of logical, right? Individuals vary. He says individuals vary the thresholds in which they use to switch between focusing on dealing with issues via the all-encompassing norm-enforced talkity collective and uh-huh. or via general Machiavellian social skills mediated by personal reason. Okay, so this is not that easy to understand when you read it. But my, my takeaway uh, from it was that basically there's just there's just be people who like talking 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 through issues um and there's you know the, and there's people who don't and this actually I, mean, I like maybe i like this because it sort of mirrors my uh, liberals read conservatives watch tv mm-hmm. it's just there's people who have these like uh this sort of inclination towards um uh towards the written word and towards to more uh sophisticated um you know more sophisticated kinds of uh uh analysis and then people who are just sort of instinctual and this would actually be a little bit different from the york theory left right because it would place libertarians and i do this in liberals weekly it would place libertarians more with the left um than it would with uh with the right just because libertarians are into books they don't have their cable news channel right liberals have their cable news channel but their energy is coming from the new york times and from Mm -hmm. uh academia um and this sort of makes sense to me. And I think that like part of, I don't know, you, you talk about your experience dealing with rightists and leftists. And I feel like what I disagree with, le- <laughs> I feel like what I disagree with leftists, it's sort of, I can actually say what I think and like they can go back and forth. And it seems like you, there's some strands of conservative thought, especially this like populist and like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, religious, what the liberals call Christian nationalism, that it's just so foreign to my thinking that I can't even like, you know, oh, uh, you know, it's like, oh, you know, surrogacy, uh, it's, it's commodification of women. So some leftists talk like this too, but it seems like the rightists really hate the stuff that they think is unnatural. Like you have this uh, article on Lawrence Cass um, uh, uh, in your, in your, Leon Cass, Leon Cass. Leon Cass, yeah. Uh, in your in your thing, and it's like that is just that's probably more foreign to me than just about uh, any leftist. Um, and so, yeah, can you talk about the Hansonian view and sort of you know how, how you understand it? Right. I think the view that I'm specifically criticizing is what he calls the forager farmer theory, which is similar to what you were saying. Although I think that like what you're saying comes in a later piece, and I'm not sure if he would say that the talking versus non-talking is just an elaboration of forager farmer or not, but yeah, well, what, Robin, you, what, you, what you quote puts, yeah, you quote like a paragraph and it puts okay, the, okay. the talking so, so, non-talking so, 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 in a, uh, yeah, to the forefront. Okay. So I'm like, I'm, I, I, you know, the problem is I know Robin's thought so well that it does start to blend together <laughs> after, after a while, but 
Yeah. I mean, the, like, so like, like it, it doesn't seem like that crazy. I mean, I would say, of course, that you have from like for a longer span of history, almost everyone who writes is just religious and is writing about religion and then maybe religious implications for politics. Uh, now, you might say this is sort of the illusion of wanting to have a conversation because it's so heavily foreordained what the conclusion has to be. I mean, especially among Christians, among Jews, there's more of an idea of we can have brilliant rabbis disagreeing about what the texts really say, and we don't have to go and declare someone anathema. We can just go and spend a few years talking about it. Well, I think like Rezzi of like I think it might have been Richard Dawkins who said this that basically like before Darwin, like the most like logical like sort of reasoning about the universe would point you towards a religious perspective because we had no sort of uh, explanation of how you know the world and how it came from mm-hmm. and how humans got where they mm-hmm. are. And so maybe it would say something like like maybe the peasants had like maybe the peasants were like into just like very sort of narrow minded, maybe like even some cultures they have animistic beliefs or like these things that don't even make yeah. logical consistent sense. While like the religious people were the leftists of the time because they were universal, plus they were like systemizing like everything mm-hmm. and putting it into like a grand theory of where the world came from. And then you know, science comes along and sort of blows that world up, and then you know, the the the, the peasants now adopt the religion and then the you know, the uh, uh educated or more uh Written, written word people adopt, you know, the, something new. I mean, intellectually, I don't think that makes much sense because we can just go back to Greeks like Epicurus and let's have a paragraph saying, look, if God created the universe, who created God? Yeah. So that's your big explanation. God created everything. Yeah. So like who created him? Okay. Right. Move, right so that's a bad theory. Let's move on. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I mean, he's got like 10 pages with one paragraph each with like, this kind of stuff where you're like, wow, like, if he was like the smartest teenager at my high school, what a great high school it would have been. Well, I think, well, I mean, yeah. I mean, like, you have to sort of think about the world they were living in, where like the equivalent of newspapers or whatever was telling them that there's these miracles and these, you know, God's sort of uh, uh, place, mm-hmm. and, you know, was having, it was interfering in human affairs all the time. And but, you know, David Hume's essay on miracles, have you seen it with your own eyes? No. Well, is it more likely that nature should go out of its course or that a man should tell a lie? Like, to me, like this is just like this is a bulldozer of an argument against a picket fence of an objection. It's like once you hear that, it's like, yeah, I don't believe in any miracles. Like, yeah, it's. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. Yeah, we we can look back now and say David Hume was was right. I don't know if I would have thought like, that. Was there the ever a time? Look, it's one thing if a person thinks they see a miracle with their own eyes. Like, like if I were like argue with David Hume at the time, I'd be like, "What about rainbows, David? What about rainbows? Aren't those obviously magical? Just look at them, right?" But it's like, like you know, no one in the history of miracles tried to even claim, you know, like, claim that oh, a rainbow's a miracle because it's common. It's always something that I know a guy who knows a guy who uh, saw a falcon come back from the dead or something. So the um, so Scott Alexander has this great review of this book. I forget what it's called, something in Latin, but it was a uh, a book from like, you know, centuries ago and it was like a witch hunting manual. Did you yeah, see yeah. that? Yeah, I remember I read that piece. And and so his so his argument is basically like this guy like actually did not a terrible job of trying to collect evidence, but sort of, you know, because we're, it's so easy for us. We know so much now. And to look back and say, of course, Hume is right and these religious, you know, morons were were wrong. Uh, but, you know, like I, you didn't have TV. You didn't have books like about. You didn't have the internet. You couldn't Google stuff. So like, I don't see miracles. But like, literally, everyone tells me, and like the equivalent of the New York Times or whatever is telling me. And like, I don't know how the sun comes up. I don't know why people get sick. I don't know anything. And like, it seems like magic is all around me. I could see myself like not believing David Hume and believing you know, uh, believing everyone else. If you're remembering 
the key thing that he, that he says, which fits with the way people talk about miracles, a miracle's got to be something of nature going out of its normal course. And when people go, and like in the, when you read the Bible, you don't read, like, which I've done cover to cover a couple times, right? when you read it, they don't say, and it was a miracle that a, that a child was born and lived happily. Like things that are great but are commonplace, no one ever claims their miracles. It's got to be something that no one sees with their own eyes. Those are the things that are the purported miracles. It's so what makes so a good story. Say it's like never, let's say you're snakes. Holy no. crap. But let's <laughs> say you've never, see, you've never seen snow before. Let's say you live in the Middle East. And yes. like maybe it snows once every fifty years, and you see snow. Miracle, right? By by the by the standard rules, right? This white, fluffy stuff just comes out of the air out of nowhere. You see a dust storm. There are like rare events that you would see once, right, or no times in your lifetime that we have scientific explanations yeah. for, for now. Even, even those things, it is very unusual in any religious text I know of from the pre-modern period to claim that rare natural events are miracles. Probably because the time, by the time you get to the point where somebody's writing something down, they know sort of what snow is maybe. Yeah. Well, like, like a lot of the stuff is written, like some of these texts are very ancient. It varies widely. There's a great book called Who Wrote the Bible where they go over how it is that we know when the books were actually written and so on. And some of the stuff is maybe is from 1000 BC. It's out of order. In a way, this is the most one of the most textually fascinating exercises. You'll probably agree that going and reading, like you know, like like Derrida or something, to figure out what he really meant is pointless. Like the guy just rambled and didn't make sense. But to go and read the Bible to figure out what it really meant, look, there's hundreds of authors all it all being put together by a committee of people voting and murdering people to figure out what goes in this book. Now that is quite a soap opera of a book, and to understand why that book says what it says. And of course, there's no mystery about why it contradicts itself because it's written by different people living hundreds of years apart. Of course, yeah. Okay, yeah. So that's uh, so yeah. So we yeah we got another, we got we got another another tangent there. But okay, so I think that this is this is why these sort of these left right for right. you know. These sort we, of, so like the other thing that's a bit odd for the forager farmer story is for you know it's farmers that get literacy, not foragers. Yeah. So. I mean, it's sort of like, like, again, you would think that a more natural one would be that, that the left wing would be t- left would be talkers and the right would be writers. That would fit better, I think, with Robin's story. In terms of the differences between uh, psychologically between... Is, he farmers and for, is this literal in his theory that like it started with the farmers and foragers or is, it, is this just a I metaphor? think it is meant to be literal. It's meant to be that we were all foragers once. This is sort of our basic psychological foundation. And then farming gets added on on top, and then human beings have to psychologically adjust to a farming world, which is really different and unnatural. And then industrialization, in Robin's view, basically takes what's typical of farming and intensifies it. We take, oh my God, I have to wake up every day at dawn and go and do a bunch of work I don't want to do so that my family doesn't die uh, nine months from now. And then the Industrial Revolution goes and says, no, it's going to be a lot more than that. You're going to have to wake up every day when this clock reads 6 a.m. And you're going to walk to a place where a bunch of other people do all the same thing at all the same time. So that, I believe, is the way that Robin thinks about it, is that industrialization is sort of hyper farming in terms of what it demands of human beings to cope with this new reality. I think you are right about libertarians in this, in some sense, fit in better with liberals. To me, there's this story that's, uh, stays with me. So, I, you know, have, have you been to either or both of Cato and the Heritage Institution? Uh, have I been Cato? Um, I've never been. I've like met people at Cato. Yeah, but you've ever been Cato, inside I've, the building? I've never been inside yeah. the building at Heritage. Yeah, so, I might have. I might have once, but I, I can't recall. Yeah, yeah so I think both I was buildings are blanketed with portraits of admir- of admired people. 
Now, who do you think is on the wall at Heritage? Uh, okay, so they're both blanketed with malls of... Uh, with, uh, yeah, they're, all, they're both blanketed with portraits of people that are admired by people at that think tank. I would guess, I would guess Ronald Reagan. Yeah. So, yeah, it's conservative politicians are on the walls at Heritage. Who do you think is on the walls at Cato? Oh, Hayek and... and yeah, libertarian intellectuals. Yeah. There's basically not a single politician there, really, yeah. on the walls, which partly you say, well, the, the conservatives have a lot more success in politics, so they've got some people to put on the wall. I think it also does just reflect the internalized status hierarchy. To libertarians, the highest form of human being is like Milton Friedman. That's like yeah. the best a human being can be is just some short genius going and fast talking and explaining the way the world works and how everything is screwed up. It's interesting. It's not Henry Ford or Elon Musk or, or yes, something yes. because yeah. maybe that would be better market. Maybe the rich guys would give them all their money if the, if the libertarians <laughs> put all their, I mean, I think it fits better with the philosophy. Who cares about the, you know, the guy who, the guy who did something if I had ran, I wonder what the Ayn Rand Institute. I wonder whose picture is they. Probably just Ayn oh, Rand. Oh yeah, yeah they, no. <laughs> probably nobody else. Just pretty much just her, I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, Although from her stories, yeah. you would think that now then there's none person to be removed. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You so think from her stories. That, that, that reminded me. So, oh yeah. So I mean, here's the funny thing. So I've met a lot of successful libertarian businessmen, and they too have internalized this norm. So like to a lot of these guys, like I'm better than they are. And I'm like, how am I better than you? <laughs> but there's, there's some sense in which I'm like a, like a, like a, a sacred figure for them. And they have just made money and, and been super successful. Whereas I have thought the grand thoughts. And so they, you know, they, they look to me with this strange respect and I'm like, okay, like I'll take it if you want to give it to me, but you're the one that actually adds value in the world. Yeah. I think there's a, yeah, there's an essay of yours about, um, uh, about veneration. And I was, you know, there's something when I wrote my enlightened centrist piece, some people push back on, but I, I may even write another piece to sort of elaborate on this. You, you think that if you hear somebody and they say like, my worldview is based on, you know, philosophers from like 300, 400 years ago. I think that's odd because I think as smart as somebody <laughs> might have been in 1600, 1700, they know a fraction of the things we know yeah. uh, today. And even if their even if their IQs were 200, like I don't trust that people are going to have you know the best ideas compared to somebody who has access to Google and all the scientific information we built up over the years. It's fun. It's fun to read Nietzsche. It's fun to read Plato or Aristotle or something. But I don't read them to get insight into life or politics. Are, are you? Do you think pretty much the same way? Yeah, probably ninety percent. You know, there are a few old thinkers where I read them and they're like, wow, this guy figured this out and, it, and he made the argument it's still correct. Obviously, as soon as you're talking about facts, then we have this huge advantage over them. In terms of argument, sometimes there's an argument that is non-obvious until you hear it and then you can't unthink it. It's so well-crafted. Like you just read the 10-page letter to Monesius of Epicurus. There's a bunch of arguments in there where People are still arguing about these questions, and you're like, right, this ancient Greek with no internet or anything, he just solved a bunch of problems. Yeah, you can, yeah, you could be amazed, right? You could be amazed yeah. at the accomplishment of it. Yeah, yes. you know, also, you know, also, especially if you're young and you don't yet know the answer, and then you read some guy from 2,500 years ago. Yep, in a paragraph, he solved the problem. Moving on, and again, there's all there's a sense of disbelief. It's like it can't really be that easy. And then you spend some years reading more. It's like. I think he just solved it 2,500 years ago and people are just too daft to go and accept that the problem is solved and they can move on with their lives. You know, like Hume's essay on miracles, that argument is just so good. It's just a thing of beauty. 
But at the same time, yeah, it's just not that often. Um, you know, like, as to like reading old economists, I've definitely have done quite a bit of it. In terms of ones where I feel like I actually understood economics better at the end, like actually Eugen von Bombavarks, Capital and Interest, that's good. And that's one where like I was already earning my PhD and I read that and I said, okay, I understand why interest exists and, 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 the, and the relationship between capital interest. I actually understand it better than before in a way that was not being taught. What, what year is this book? Hmm? What year is this book? It's, it's like 1880s. Okay. It's, vol- it's actually three volumes. You know what? I read Schumpter. Um, I, Schumpeter. I had a, Schumpeter. Oh, however you pronounce it. Yeah, I, I had a good reaction to it. That was 19, yeah, that was 1940 or something. 1943, yeah. Capitalism, yeah. Socialism, Democracy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so, I, I, yeah, that, that's, that's got a lot of good stuff. Yeah, but we're still talking. We're still talking pretty close at 1880, yeah, 1943. Right. Yeah. yeah, in terms of people, you know, like for like the ancient world, Epicurus is top notch for me. Like in terms of anyone else from earlier periods, let's see. You know, you know David Hume has some great stuff in there. I mean, you know, like essentially any time when it's just not that empirical, it's more of like you know, you, know, you notice some big facts that other people aren't taking seriously, and then you explain what they mean. I noticed that you were quoting my quoting and and, ca- and copying my capitalization of the phrase "big facts." Sometimes you'll have older thinkers like that. Uh, let's see, Boss Frederick Bastiat. He's someone who actually I consider to be superior to the typical working economist today because he just understood on a deeper level. Uh, so he's really good, and actually, like like I would I, my view is if. The typical econ professor would read Bastiat's economic sophisms, economic harmonies, with humility. You know, like you can't just go in and saying, "Oh, what do I have to learn from this guy?" But you actually go and read it, willing to go and accept that maybe he has something new to tell you. I think it's just hard to like. There's just very few econ PhDs who understand the subject well enough to not learn a lot about it. So there's that. But yeah, in general, I do think that it's just kind of ridiculous the way that Yeah, people- it seems to me the difference between the free market economists and the uh, non-free market economists is this is the big facts distinction. It seems to me that the mm-hmm. free market economists remember these big facts and they keep them in mind. Mm-hmm. And then the non-free market economists, you know, they'll you know, if you really push them into a corner and sort of just yell yeah. at them about it, they'll they'll get it. Uh, but they're too easy, you know, it's too easy for them. They're burdened of sort of proof mm-hmm. for how easy it is to just discard. That yeah, we're especially saying everybody knows that, and it's like, what do you mean everybody knows that? Like 95% of non-economists deny it, including the politicians that you vote for. Right. So how can you keep saying everybody knows this stuff? They totally don't. And it's practically relevant. You know, like one really interesting thing, I think Brad DeLong was talking about Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson, mm-hmm. which is classic of free market economics, good book. You're like trying to emulate Bastiat, not as good as the master, but who is? And what Geelong said was fascinating. He said, look, this is a good book, but right-wing people should never read it because if they do, they will just think that they are correct overall and they're not. Whereas left-wing people should read it because it's a necessary corrective for them. Right? And in a way, it's like, well, it's kind of a big compliment to say that this right-wing book should be read by all the people who agree with you. But honestly, I would say uh, he should probably read it some more times because he, you know, he, like, you know, as other people, per my simplistic theory, like he's just got so much resentment of markets that even though he knows a lot of good things about them, there could be one giant big fact of markets have brought us into an incredible world of prosperity, but he'd rather talk about and complain about things they haven't done. You know, he has this very interesting dialogue about the 
implicit social welfare function of capitalism and how we put so much more weight upon the value of the, or the upon the well-being of the rich. And then I went and redid it and said, look, this is nothing compared to the well-being uh, weights that we do for Americans versus non-Americans. But Brad, and, and anyway, Brad is very good on immigration. I've seen him give talks on it, but it's not the first thing he wants to talk about. It's not the second thing he wants to talk about. He would rather, you know, I think his ratio of complaining about rich people and business to complaining about immigration restrictions is 10 to 1, maybe 50 to 1. They're national social. I mean, I like when you say all, Paul, like right and left are just different flavors of national socialists, right? They just put different emphasis. One puts more emphasis on national and one puts more emphasis yeah. on the socialists. Mm-hmm. Uh, but compared to what you yeah. or I would think would be uh, reasonable politics, I think I think that's right. Um let me uh, let me close by asking you sort of uh, what do you think about you, you know that the George Mason you know you guys the economics department is you know it's it's I think it's just a just a, an amazing you know intellectual just a, sort of an intellectual environment I mean there's you know just a, an entire world that revolves it you have Tyler with the emergent venture stuff you know each one uh, one of you guys you know the marginal revolution blog each of you guys have your own fans and, and followers and uh, people who venerate you um, as individuals. Um, how do you like? Do you think that like um, you know? How do you first of all? Do you think that this will continue within you know? Given the way the uh, academy is, and a related question, do you see sort of like a next generation after? Well, you guys got another probably thirty years in a, in your each of you, but mm-hmm. you know, eventually, do you see this sort of building something you know that's going to continue over time? I think it depends heavily upon whether we retain control of hiring. The long-run plan of the university, I am convinced, is to take hiring authority away from departments to make sure that there is a true DEI monoculture in the long run. They're not going to fire us. They're going to wait for us to die. But they don't. But if they take hiring away from us, then eventually they can realize their, their long-run dream. So far, so good, and they've not been able to take hiring away from us. But I know of other universities where this has already happened, and I am concerned Right now, we have a Republican governor who's been pushing back on wokeness, so I think we have a temporary reprieve. But he's not DeSantis. He's not going to try to just get rid of this stuff at the root, so it's going to keep coming back. So as to whether we can keep doing what we're doing is, uh, I mean, I, I like it's way more likely to be here than in a typical place. But yeah, eventually they may just prevent us from hiring anyone that is different, anyone who's you know, going to just go and, and foist the standard agenda on us and then uh, we will die the we will die our biological deaths and our and then our ideas will be only on the internet uh, we won't have intellectual descendants in the same way yeah so, yeah it's, it's, so you've it's, noticed you've noticed the difference with the the new um there was an article in the uh, in the uh, i think it was the washington post about the new uh, board of you know the board of regents or whatever for uva mm-hmm. uh what youngkin is doing you've noticed a difference with the with the change in administration Yes. The main thing is, well, you know, to understand, so Virginia is not like Florida. In Virginia, the governor, I think, like he's limited to, I believe, one four-year term, and each year he can, re- he can change four people on this board. So basically, you can only have four replacement just as you're leaving office. That is the deliberate setup in our system. Uh, however, of course, there's also the strategic reaction of the people that are running the individual state universities, and George Mason is a public university of the state of Virginia, when they sense that they've got, that the state government has their backs, then they are not only going to do what they want, but also the many opportunists that are in the administration here, who are not all that political, they can also feel which way the wind is going, and the opportunists then say they're true believers. When the state government changes, this is where you see, okay, there's actually 
a, it's not quite the monoculture that it appears to be. There's a minimum a range of fanaticism, and there's some people who basically just want to go and have power and money and barely care about ideology. Anyway, so what you can what we what, what I've been able to see with my own eyes is that in 2020 they were just breathing down our necks to go and basically say, look, you have you admit that you are an evil white male and that anyone that you would want to hire would be terrible, right? You have to admit that they didn't really say that, but that was the definitely the subtext. And we had to go through, uh, to be on the hiring committee, there were mandatory training sessions that we had to endure where people that deserve F's in public speaking classes just read their stupid PowerPoints to us and we had to be there or else we weren't allowed to be on the committee. Right? So there was this period where they, like, it, was, it was very obvious what they were, that they were trying to go and make us break the law and just do race and gender-based hiring. Uh, but they, did not, they were not quite the level of saying, of, of actually vetoing us if we didn't do that. And that was the worst year, it was 2020, was the year of national self-flagellation. Like as, as I said, you know, in Derek's fall, we sinned all, right? Because one white cop murders one black man, all white people have, must have must go and accept. Ooh, so is this a gradual thing? Was it just like 2020, there was a spike in this stuff? Uh, yeah, the giant spike right after that. That was, cru- that was absolutely crucial. But what was 2019 different from 2015, 2014? Oh. Was there a trend? That's much harder to say. Well, here's the thing. I, w- I was first on the hiring committee for 2020. So uh, that's where you see... First of all, the high stakes, because it's basically, it's determining the future of the university. If you, you know, whoever controls hiring permanently, eventually will have the university be the way that they want it to be. Right. Uh, and so, um, any, any, anyway, so like, I, I was not, I, like, I was not at the right place in the university to see it. I think the usual view is that it was very slowly moving that direction. And then 2020 after George Floyd, that was when suddenly there was a great need to wash the collective blood off of our hands through any possible means. So let's get rid of Aunt Jemima syrup and every other ludicrous, and let's recast the voice talent on the Simpsons so that all black characters are played by black voice actors. Every little ridiculous thing that was going on during that time. And I got to see the George Mason version of that up close in the, what, we, what they tried to make our hiring committee do. In the end, I think we did it. We did a good job, and we held the line. But there, the, which is precisely why they don't want. They, I think their long run agenda is to take hiring away from us, because then, like they know, they just mean. I mean, immediately again, if you just listen to what they tell, the way that they talk to us, it really is. Look, be fair for <laughs> once in your horrible <laughs> life. Be fair is that's the subtitles of what they are saying. You know, because. Like, you know, like, I, like in another book, I just have this essay called... Who, Don't who are these people? They're the dean's office, the EI office? Who are yeah, they? Yeah, basically, it's human resources and DEI office, uh-huh. and you have to have meetings with all of them in order to serve on the hiring committee. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, so you know, like, like, I'll admit, like, after three different meetings, I'm generally hazy on which group was talking to me at which time, but like mm-hmm. all these people have their say. But you know, like, if you just imagine going and talking to a person and saying, look, here's what we want you to do for this hiring session. Be fair. And it's like, like, how am I supposed to take that? <laughs> it's like, it goes without saying, this is the way I live my life. Yeah. And if you say that to me in a self-righteous tone, it sounds like you are accusing me of never having been fair in my life before or now. And you're trying to pressure me to turn over a new leaf. And I don't accept the premise that I was unjust previously. Yeah. Yeah, so this will uh, this will surprise some people, and that they think that the politics is sort of this is stuff is beyond politics. You're telling me that you could notice a difference based on who's who's in office uh, in, in Virginia. 
yeah, so definitely in Virginia, there's, you know, I mean, like, I mean, I could also just see it in my daughter's school where once Yonkin was in office, they got rid of mass mandates right quick. Yeah. Right yeah until I think then, I, like, like if the Democrat had won, I think it would have lasted for additional months. You know, first, Yonkin just tried to do it by executive order and that failed. And then he actually got the job done. And like, holy moly, this guy actually accomplished something that affected the way that my child lives and the way it affected, you know, affected my family. Uh, in terms of what's going on in campus, yeah, like you can tell that the people who are at the top, in general, not always, but people who rise to the top of, of the administration are go along to get along kind of people. If they head steel, then they might just say, you know, I'd rather let, let have the state of Virginia go and cut my budget 10% and I'll go and run the school the way that I want. And I, one of my long running arguments with Tyler is how much autonomy do college presidents have? Right? And I'm always saying, look, I agree that to, that to get to the top, you have to seem very flexible and unprincipled because otherwise people won't give you the power. But, my, but Tyler then likes to claim that people at the top don't actually have a lot of flexibility. And I'm always like, they do. They do. They might not be the personality type that will exercise it. But once they're there, it's super awkward to remove them. They have a lot of levers they can use to go and throw their critics off balance. And if they were just willing to be hated and wanted to do something, they could get it done. I mean, of course, uh, like we've both been following Bukele a lot in El Salvador. This is the kind of thing I've been, I've actually been telling Tyler that this thing would work if tried for decades. And he's always been saying, you're so naive, Brian. You just don't understand how things work. And I'm, and I'm like, look, I'm not saying it's likely, Tyler. I'm saying it would work if tried. Those are different things, usually observationally equivalent because people with a lot of steel don't get into positions like that. And obviously... When I say that someone has steel, that you can have steel for good or evil. This is a morally neutral description. But in the same way that I think it's crazy to say that a suicidal terrorist lacks courage, it's crazy to see, it's crazy to say that a fanatic who gets in charge and does terrible stuff lacks steel. They've got steel, they lack a lot of other good things. It comes down to the spatial, basic social science question of like how much autonomy does a person at the top really have? It varies a lot, but still, I think that that, that in general, people at the top have a lot of autonomy. Well, it's, it's funny because when I tell you talk about following politics, like Trump fans on on Twitter, like they'll always be like, "Oh, he wanted to do X, Y, Z," but like the deep state like threw him off, and it's always like, "I mean, who?" Like you look at like, "Oh, these people who who appointed them," but it's always they're you know they're yeah. almost Trump's appointees. Yeah. It's like, why are you guys like? What are you yeah, guys complaining about? Fauci, for God's sake. Yeah, he Fauci. I mean, he had a, yeah. a Bolton. All these people who turned against him, but he ended up hating were just like people he appointed. So it's like it's like so, such a funny, pathetic sort of uh, excuse for, for helplessness. Uh, yeah, okay. So that's good. I mean, it's good to remind people that, you know, politics matters. It's DEI stuff. It's not just, you know, uh, you mm -hmm. know an autonomous, you know, cancerous growth. It, it comes from somewhere and it gets support and nourishment. Um, right. Now, you had your piece on how Reagan tried to get rid of affirmative action, which I had been just falsely saying that he didn't even try for years. And then I learned, oh, he did try. Yeah. Now, I, although I don't remember, like, how much did he go to the mattresses? If he had just said, like, he, I... He, he vetoed a pretty big bill. He vetoed a, a bill. And that's the maximum of the Civil Rights Restoration Act and that it was overridden um, by both houses of Congress. So, yeah, he went to the bat for that one. And then the uh, executive order, he, the, the threat was that Cong Congress was different. I mean, this is, this is the mm -hmm. thing. It was like the Republicans would go along with expansions of civil rights law. Like, mm -hmm. this is not true today. This hasn't been true in 20, 20, 25 years. But in the mid-1980s, yeah, it was still a bipartisan consensus. So that, that's the sort mm -hmm. of the, the circumstances he was operating in. What if Reagan had made it his signature plank? 
Oh, he I mean, said, yes. was, uh, I mean, 1984. Would, he, he got, would Republicans have, you know, have backed him up then? I mean, in 1984, you know, he won 48, you know, 49 states. Yeah. So yeah I mean, probably, I mean, he was a pretty popular yeah. guy and a lot of power. So I think so, but yeah, he had cold yeah. war and a lot of other things going on. I mean, this, this is actually very similar to what you've been saying about Bokele, where people often look at someone and see they make a token effort and, and then they fail and they say, see, it's impossible. It's like, he didn't try that hard. We got to get someone who makes it his top priority and then see what happens. Now, like a case where I think that probably wouldn't have even mattered what the person said. So if Pence had actually done what Trump wanted and tried to overturn the results of the 2020 election, I think that uh, Biden would still be in office. I think that was going just too far. And no matter how hard you tried, I mean, the military would not have Trump's back. So in the end, he was going down one way or another. It wasn't just a matter of they didn't use all available tools. Although even there, it's like, 10% 10% chance that Pence could have flipped it to Trump, maybe? Could yeah. that have happened? Yeah, yeah. Got to throw the dice and find out. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah well, a lot of this, like, I feel like a lot of my openness to prob- probabilistic thinking and just distaste for people claiming to know the future with certainty. So I spent my whole childhood playing role-playing games, and it's like, look, roll the dice. Maybe you'll get lucky. You never know. <laughs> maybe you'll roll three 20s in a row, and you'd kill Demogorgon. Prove it yeah. won't happen. Okay. Yeah. Whatever that means. Whatever killing Demogorgon means. I, I think I, I agree with your. Agree with uh, your so you don't watch Stranger Things or play D anD D? No, Stranger Things. Uh, no, I, I never got into that. I watched okay. one episode, and it sort of there. Yeah. There, I thought the cultural reference would now be known to all. No, maybe <laughs> I'm too. Maybe I'm too young. The 1980s is before my time, so it seems. Yeah, yeah it's not. It's not something I remember from childhood. Uh, okay. Well, this was fun, Brian. What are you working yeah, on? Totally. What's uh, what's coming? What's forthcoming with you? Right. Uh, so anyway, the new book, Voters as Mad Scientists, is available on Amazon right now. 12 bucks for the paperback, nine ninety nine for the ebook. There are three other volumes already written in this series of essays. There's four more that are still scheduled. Uh, let's see. So probably one more will come out this year. That will be You Will Not Stampede Me, Essays on Nonconformism. And then... I'll, I'll give it like 85% chance that my next book on housing regulation is out by Christmas in time to give it to all your friends and family and enemies. Uh, this, this is Build Baby Build, The Science and Ethics of Housing. So that one, it's really been, the writing part has been done for over a year, but the artist is taking a while. It's going to be awesome. It's is a different it's artist a graphic, than the last one. novel? Yes, yes. Another, it's another nonfiction graphic novel. There's all this fantastic research on housing regulation that is just super boring for almost any human to read. And yet I say this issue is the second most important policy issue in the first world. And furthermore, like I actually, so there's a chapter in the book called the panacea policy. See, this is a policy that actually would make a major dent in almost everything. Almost everyone's complaining about, I don't think it will do anything about LGBT issues. I didn't even bother trying that, but <laughs> whatever you think about that, I, guess, I don't think housing is going to help. I don't know, maybe. Well, they say, but don't they say they always say trends are disproportionately homeless? I mean, they always have these statistics that they use. So, uh, uh, maybe, but you know, like we're, we're like we're really stretching it. But there's a lot of other problems that people complain about a lot. You know, inequality, poverty, lack of social mobility, crime, fertility. You know, these are all things where there are bodies of solid and plausible research saying that. How that lowering housing prices via deregulation would make a, a, a big difference, and so we got that. Interesting. Yeah, I'm also working on a another Princeton University Press type book uh, called "Unbeatable: The Brutally Honest Case for Free Markets." 
this is building on a lot of the stuff on social desirability bias that I've been working on over the last 10 years or so. Uh, but it's sort of my grand theory about what is so great about markets and what's so bad about government. Mm. It comes down to this. So there's something psychologists call social desirability bias, which I guess we didn't talk about today, but we've talked about it before. And it's a very commonsensical idea. It just says when the truth sounds bad, people lie. And sometimes the lies get so ubiquitous that people start even stop even realizing that it's a lie. Right? Then things like am I fat? Right? There's only one socially acceptable answer to that. Right? Now, similarly, uh, what you know, what, like in politics, there's a lot of policies where you really aren't even supposed to look too hard at them. Like say, let's go and have more money for homeless veterans. Like, and like, can you imagine a politician saying, no, no, we're already spending way too much on homeless veterans. It's like, no one wants to say that. What people want to say is, of course, like these are the, the most important people and we have shamefully mistreated them, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so what I say in the book is that once you understand social desirability bias, you realize on a deep level, there are good things that sound bad and there are bad things that sound good. And the story that I push is this. What is really under, underappreciated about markets is markets do good stuff that sounds bad. Markets produce all the goods we are embarrassed to admit we like, but we love them. <laughs> markets make alcohol. Markets make pornography. They make tobacco. Markets go and you know, you know, they let people live in your bars. Like things no one wants to give a speech in favor of this stuff. But markets sell it to us without judgment. They even try to make us feel good about it by, uh, by going and buying luxury products in a world of human suffering, like by saying, oh, well, like Mercedes, the best or nothing. So anyway, I say with us, is a, even people like free markets don't really appreciate how they are rescuing us from our own hypocrisy and letting us live a decent human life, even though our announced ideals are unlivable. And on the flip side, I say, what does government do? Now, government does the bad stuff that sounds good. Government does all the policies where they say, I don't care how much it costs, we're going to do X. We're going to wipe out every, every act of terrorism. I don't care what it costs. All right, great. So let's spend a trillion, put two countries into ruins, not get rid of terrorism. Yeah. Because this, sounds, this just sounds like this sounds like a quarter of your, your last book. It sounds like like five of these essays. Is there what's what's um, new with this book? Well, basically I'm like what I'm doing here is I'm trying to go and I'll get the big picture. Like, and just go through like you know, everything good about markets through this lens, everything bad about government through this lens. Uh, and it'll be, and basically a, a lot of what I'm trying to do is, is to get over this standard midwit view that what the, the, what we really need to know about markets and government is that sometimes markets are good, sometimes they're bad, sometimes government good is good, sometimes government is bad. The only thing we need to do is to get the balance right. This is what most you know, econ professors teach their students. And I say, look, that sounds good, but it is actually the wrong thing to be telling people because you are forgetting the fact that people are embarrassed to go and praise a lot of the good stuff that markets do. They are embarrassed to go and condemn a lot of the bad stuff that markets do. So we really need to go back to a very strong free market position and say, look, not only this is not just the, like it is a minority view, but if you really understand the arguments, it is not a dogmatic view. It's not a religion. It is the reasonable, brutally honest view of the world. And the reason why we've been so unsuccessful at selling it is just because it sounds so freaking ugly. 
is it a, is the book aimed at other other economists? Because I think that would be a very interesting. Yeah. Answer. So basically, it's going to be like my other university press books, where I am trying to get the entire range of from the good undergraduate all the way up to the active researcher specializing in the topic of regulation. So I want everyone within that range to be able to read it and understand a lot of what's going on. Obviously, the experts will understand more of what I'm saying than the undergraduates, but. That's what I try to do in my other university press books, and that's what I'm trying to do in Unbeatable, The Brutally Honest Case for Free Markets. Uh, it's right, the writing is going fast for me, but you know, I'm not like Tyler. I don't turn out two or three books in a year. So I think maybe I can have, you know, like, like, I, want it, I want it to be really great. That's what I like. Like whenever I'm writing, the thing that gives me writer's block, but the thing that also gives me quality control is this book must be the best book ever written on its topic. Uh, that, you know, like you, you might say that's megalomania. Look, if I don't believe it, who will? <laughs> if I'm not there saying, oh my God, this is so fantastic. No one else on earth will. So at least I've got to please myself. Yeah. Sounds good. Okay. So we will, uh, yeah, we'll be looking forward to all of that. Thanks a lot, Brian. All right. All right. Fantastic talking to you as always, Richard. Rock on, man. Mm-hmm.